As you remain standing, you can grab your Bible and turn to the book of Job, chapter 20. A simple way to get there if you haven't been with us in recent weeks is you can turn to the middle part of your Bible. Likely you'll land in the book of Psalms and you turn one book to your left, you'll find this wonderful book of Job. And tonight we hear from Job's friend Zophar for the last time in chapter 20. And we'll also give our attention to Job's reply in chapter 21. As has been the case with much of these or many of these conversations, the words flow forth, but the point is rather simple. So let me read all of chapter 24. It's 29 verses and then I'll pray and we'll begin together. So listen now as God speaks to you once again through his word. Then Zophar, the Naamathite, answered and said, Therefore my thoughts answer me, because of my haste within me. I hear censure that insults me, and out of my understanding a spirit answers me. Do you not know this from of old, since man was placed on earth, that the exulting of the wicked is short, and the joy of the godless but for a moment, though his height Mount up to the heavens, and his head reach to the clouds, he will perish forever, like his own dung. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? And he will fly away like a dream, and not be found, and he will be chased away like a vision of the night. The eye that saw him will see him no more, nor will his place any more behold him. His children will seek the favor of the poor, and his hands will give back his wealth. His bones are full of his youthful vigor, but it will lie down with him. In the dust, though evil is sweet in his mouth, and though he hides it under his tongue, though he is loath to let it go and holds it in his mouth, yet his food is turned in on his stomach. It is the venom of cobras within him. He swallows down riches and vomits them up again. God casts them out of his belly. He will suck the poison of cobras, and the tongue of a viper will kill him. He will not look upon the rivers, the streams flowing with honey and curds. He will give back the fruit of his toil and will not swallow it down. From the profit of his trading, he will get no enjoyment. For he has crushed and abandoned the poor. He has seized a house that he did not build. Because he knew no contentment in his belly, he will not let anything in which he delights escape him. There was nothing left after he had eaten. Therefore, his prosperity will not endure in the fullness of his sufficiency. He will be in distress in the hand of everyone in misery will come against him. To fill his belly to the full, God will send his burning anger against him and rain it upon him into his body and he will flee from an iron weapon. A bronze arrow will strike him through. It is drawn forth and comes out of his body. The glittering point comes out of his gallbladder. Terrors come upon him. Utter darkness is laid up for his treasures. A fire not fanned will devour him and what is left in his tent will be consumed. The heavens will reveal his iniquity and the earth will rise up against him. The possessions of his house will be carried away, dragged off in the day of God's wrath. This is the wicked man's portion from God, the heritage decreed for him by God. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray once again. Father, we do ask that you would help us this evening to have humility and meekness in receiving your word, that your spirit would work its truth into our hearts, that we might find its comfort and conviction. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
Not too long ago, I was reading this book by a well-known historian. He had taken as his latest project the story of the Wright brothers. And somehow along the way, I had discovered that their father was a bishop in the Methodist church in the 19th century. And one day, Bishop Wright had attended this convention within the denomination. And somehow, in the course of that day's festivities and even activities on the floor, someone was giving forth and holding forth about their plans and even their future ideas of what was soon going to come for ministerial activity in the United States. And a man stood up and said, well, soon no more missionaries and ministers in our country going to have to go from land to land and town to town on horseback. They will fly through the air. Bishop Wright stands up and says, this is false teaching. The story goes that he used much more of a stronger phrase than that because he said, nothing heavier than air will ever fly through the sky. God has only ordained that angels fly in the sky. Well, of course, it wasn't too many years later in 1903 that his two sons that he marched out of the room that day in anger over what he had heard from the floor would do nothing other than send forth an airplane into the sky that would prove their father's confidence altogether misguided. And the reason I tell you that is because every person at some place in their life, yet some people more than others, can bluster forth in confidence, can expound upon things of which they really don't know, but they do so with utter certainty, with utter strength, and in the grand scheme of things, they're altogether wrong. And what such man in the Bible, one such man is this one to whom we return to, and come to the last time in our study of Job, this friend named Zophar. And if you remember when he showed up earlier in the book, it was Zophar who was the bluntest of all the friends. Like this blunt force object, he was wreaking havoc in Job's soul. And tonight what they are debating, arguing with words that are full of animosity, frankly. Uh, what they're debating is this question of, of fairness. Do bad people get what they deserve? Because the previous conversations with Job's friends has said little more than innocent people, well, bad things don't happen to them. Righteous people, they don't suffer. And the mere side to that statement is that, well, the wicked don't live in prosperity. And so what we're going to see tonight in chapter 20 is Zophar's many words that we just read, you just heard, and the simple title over that chapter is, Bad Things Happen to Bad People. Well, Job's going to come along in chapter 21 and say, not so fast, so far. Good things happen to bad people. It's going to go on this long, eloquent discourse on how it is true that so often in life it's not bad things happening to bad people that we observe as much as it's good things happening to bad people. Therefore, so far, your counsel is quite worthless and pointless. And you need to know where we left off last week in chapter 19. We had this eloquent and faithful statement of Job in chapter 19 as he longed for the days when his name would be engraved upon this rock forever and that his Redeemer would live and stand at last upon the earth. But if you glance back up to verse 28 and 29 of chapter 19, he speaks directly to his friends. Job does saying, if you say, how will we pursue him? And the root of the matter is found in him. Be afraid of the sword. 
For wrath brings the punishment of the sword that you may know there is a judgment. And just like it was for that first cycle of conversations, it goes through Eliphaz, and it goes through Bildad, and eventually comes to Zophar. And along the way, as Eliphaz speaks, and Job responds, and Bildad speaks, and Job responds. It's get this, the story has the sense, the narrative has the sense of Zophar as they're barely containing himself, barely holding his mouth shut because he's desperate to burst forth. And you'll see he does the exact same thing as he begins to say bad things happen to bad people. Notice again, verse two and three, therefore my thoughts answer within me because of my haste within me. I hear this counsel that needs censure. And what is his counsel? But verse four and five, do you not know this from of old since man was placed on earth that the exalting of the wicked is short and the joy of the godless, but for a moment. So that's his thesis statement, students. The godless experience joy for but a moment. Pleasure and prosperity, power and peace. For godless people in this life, it's altogether fleeting, and it altogether disappears quite quickly. So how is that going to apply to Job? Well, it's quite obvious, isn't it? Job, all of those blessings, all that prosperity that you had, it's altogether disappeared. And why is that? Because you're just a bad man. Job is what he says. And so the remainder of his sermon, much like we even saw last week with Bildad, what he begins to unfold is the truth of the bad things that come upon the bad people. If you glance again back down to the end of the chapter, he's speaking of this idea in verse 28 about the day of God's wrath. This punishment that's going to come upon the wicked. And so there are three promises, according to Zophar, three things that will fall upon the wicked, three calamities that will fall upon the godless. He, he first says in the section that follows in verse 6 through 11, he says that the wicked will lose their status. Look at what he says in verse 6 and 7. Though, the height, though his height mount up to the heavens and his head reach to the clouds, he will perish forever like his own dung. And those who have seen him will say, where is he? He goes on to say, doesn't he? In verse 10, his children will seek the favor of the poor. His hands will give back his wealth. His body will altogether fall apart, according to verse 11. This status and renown that he had in the world. Well, if the man is wicked, if the man is godless, it is but for a moment that such prowess will belong to his name. Such power will belong to his name and Quite as quickly as it came, Zophar says, it's going to fall away. So the wicked will lose status. And then we're told in verse 12 through 19, the wicked will lose his satisfaction. Look at what we're told in verse 12. Though evil is sweet in his mouth, and though he hides it under his tongue. Kids, you might be able to have an idea. I mean, this whole central metaphor in this second section of his sermon about the wicked getting what they deserve, it's all about what you eat. My, my grandfather is a one who has sat in no small number of sermons throughout his life. And one of the many stories that we continue to tell about Grandpa Stone as he's getting older and older, 92 years old as of now, is oftentimes how he interacted with sermons that he would hear. He would show up at the church on a Sunday morning with a pocket full of mints. He would begin to disperse them out to the grandchildren. And after the sermon, if you asked Grandpa, what do you think of the sermon today? He would grade it on how many mints he had to eat to stay awake along the way. And if he really liked the sermon, because he always popped one in at the beginning, he would keep it 
there underneath his tongue. Why? Because it would last longer. It would continue. And this is the idea that Zophar, speaking of Job, verse 13, though he is loath to let it go and holds it in his mouth, that his food is turned in his stomach and the venom of cobras is within him. All that satisfaction he has in his sin, all that satisfaction he has in wickedness, soon is going to dissipate, he says, into nothing more than like poison that would come from a cobra or these vipers. So the wicked will lose status, will lose satisfaction. And then 20 through 28 speaks about losing safety. If you just glance down to verse 22, in the fullness of his distress, he will, in the fullness of his sufficiency, he will be in distress and the hand of everyone in misery will come against him. You see, the next verse says, God will send his burning anger against him and rain it upon him into his body. And as we've done oftentimes in our study of Job, can you imagine being a man in Job's tragic and calamitous circumstances and hearing a close friend say in no small and uncertain terms, if somewhat passive aggressively, Job, what you really deserve is worse than this. God will soon send his burning anger against you. All your safety will be smashed to smithereens. What an image it is. Notice verse 25, the glittering point of this bronze arrow striking him through. It comes out of his gallbladder and terrors come upon him. This is what's going to happen to the wicked in the day of God's wrath. That's the summary comment of Zophar. Notice verse 29. This is the wicked man's portion from God. Bad people get bad things. I've spent most of my academic study in the 19th century reading these sermons from men who were considered evangelical preachers in evangelical denominations. And there are certain texts that you can observe that preachers came back to in that context in time to impress upon hearts and hearers very central truths to the Christian faith. And, and one of the ones that I've seen no small number of men preach from is Psalm chapter 9, verse 17, which in the King James Version, if I recall correctly, reads something like, Their foot shall soon slip into hell. And there was an occasion where I was reading the account of one time where a church was looking for a new pastor. And so as what was often the case actually back then is you wouldn't bring in one candidate, you would bring in multiple candidates. And after having heard from multiple candidates and observing their preaching ability, the congregation would then vote on one particular candidate. And so the first candidate came and he took first text that morning. Psalm 9 verse 17, their foot shall soon slip into hell. And he began to burst forth and burst out on the judgment that wicked sinners deserve, this, this day of God's wrath that is coming. And the chairman of what was the equivalent of the search committee back then told the committee later that night that this man cannot possibly be the pastor of this church based on that sermon from that text. Well, the next week comes, and as providence would have it, the man rises to the pulpit and he takes as his text, Psalm 9, verse 17. The wicked shall soon have their foot slip into hell. Well, he preached a sermon. And as the committee gathered together later on that night, expecting the chairman to say something quite similar that he did to the previous week's sermon, he said, this is the man for our church. And they were rather dumbfounded over by the change that they had observed in the chairman's 
considerations and conclusions. And he simply said something to the effect of, well, this man that preached today, he preached with the love of Christ and judgment in his heart. Whereas last week, was it not true that that man seemed to gloat over the judgment that sinners deserve? And I've thought of that often because even one of the men that I've spent so much time studying would love to say things like the man who preaches about hell should do so with tears in his eyes. And you would think, don't you, we don't have this tone meter, do we, in the text where we can kind of hear a tone to Zophar's words, but it seems quite certain, doesn't it? But there's no tenderness. There's no tear falling from Zophar's eyes as he is quick to condemn his friend Job as deserving nothing more than the day of God's wrath because the loss of his prosperity proves that he is a bad man because bad things happen to bad people. And so Job comes now in chapter 21 and he says, so far it's not true. Good things happen to bad people. And he says so with a degree of gusto, doesn't he? Notice verse 2 and 3 of chapter 21. Keep listening to my words. Let this be your comfort. Bear with me and I will speak. And after I've spoken, mock on. It's a wonderful phrase, isn't it? Just give me my chance and then let your mockery continue. And he pretty much answers Zophar's points. That the wicked, they lose their status. Job says, no. The wicked, they have power. Zophar says, the wicked will lose their satisfaction. Job says, no, the wicked, they have plenty of prosperity. Uh, The wicked will lose their safety, Zophar says. And Job says, no, the wicked, they have plenty of peace. So you notice what he says, just look at verse 9. Their houses are safe from fear, and no rod of God is upon them. I wonder if you've ever looked out upon the world today and thought to yourself, why is it it seem like those who don't love the Lord seemingly prosper so well. Or I suppose you could pull out Forbes magazine's list of the richest people in the world and wonder to yourself, do any of them actually love the Lord Jesus Christ? And if you know anything about such people, they almost always don't. Good things, Job says, seem to happen to bad people. And bad people really isn't even strong enough in Job's mind. Notice verse 14, who are these people? They are the ones that say to God, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your way, who is the Almighty, that we should serve him. What point do we have with God? And yet Job says, Zophar, you know as well as I do. This world has plenty of people that reject God, and they have plenty of power. They have plenty of prosperity. They have, if you glance back up to verse 13, in peace they go down to Sheol. So he's wrestling, isn't he, once again with what is the mysterious realities of God's justice and sovereignty in his life. He can't make sense of what he ordinarily thought used to be true because as the book has manifested itself along the way and Job's even convictions have shown forth along the way, it seems like prior to his suffering that Job would have probably agreed with most of his friends' convictions. But in his own experience, he said over and over, hasn't he, that I haven't deserved anything that has come upon me so it can't actually be that simplistic and safe, this system of counseling, that bad things happen to bad people. No, actually, good things often happen to bad people. So why he says in verse 22, if you skip down, will any teach God knowledge? 
seeing that he judges those who are on high. One dies in his full vigor, being wholly at ease and secure. He, his pails are full of milk and the marrow of his bones moist. Being to hold, I know your thoughts and your schemes to wrong me, he says in verse 27. He knows his friends have no comfort that they can give him. And so his conclusion is just that simple. So far, you're wrong. It's not always true that bad things happen to bad people. And so you'll glance at his conclusion in verse 34. How then will you comfort me with empty nothings? There is nothing left of your answers but falsehood. And I hope you are not a kind of person that, like Zophar and Bildad and Eliphaz, have shown to be true in recent chapters and recent studies, are so quick to not just pronounce judgment, but so quick to pronounce an answer in suffering that unwittingly, yet quite quickly, you get to a point in your desire to minister to one who is hurting, that all you are giving to them, as Job says, are empty nothings. Sometimes it's much better to be quite quiet with someone in suffering rather than attempt to solve the problem with a simplistic and safe system. Yesterday was one of those crazy days in the life of the Stone family where we had half the children in soccer tournaments scattered all throughout the Metroplex. And so we're driving here, there, and everywhere to pick kids up from soccer games, drop one off at a soccer game. And almost invariably what happens as we grab a child from a soccer game, you know, we'll talk about the game along the way and how it went. And our kids are at the age with, within probably five minutes of talking in the car, there's attention now given to the referee's performance as though the referee was responsible for what did or did not happen. And that happened throughout the day yesterday, is that more so than wanting to talk about the ways in which they fell short or actually did quite well, attention was given to whether the referee was right in calling that foul or whether the referee was correct in allowing that penalty. And many of you, I'm sure, have been in such situations where you know that so much of the animosity, so much of the emotion, so much of the attention even really falls upon the umpire, the referee, uh, the person that's arbitrating the match. And we're, we're seeing that again, aren't we? In many ways with Zophar and Job's conversation, there's attention given to the referee. And as the conversations often go with my children, even one in the morning game yesterday was upset about a foul he had been called, and I'm over there on the sideline even doing this. It's a foul. No big deal. Move along. And then in the evening, one of the children got fouled and the referee blew the whistle and called it. And he's over there ready to bark at the referee. And I cut him off from the sidelines saying, it's a foul. Move along. He called it. Because there's this sense ordinarily of fairness. Is justice been done? It wasn't fair that you gave me that card. It wasn't fair that he didn't get a card. It wasn't fair that you didn't call the foul. It's like little children, isn't it true that you can have some at home sometimes that are playing with toys and you'll watch a child with, with 10 space rangers over there and the other child with four space rangers over there and the one with four is upset that this one has 10 and you say, it's just fine, you got plenty to play with and the one with four will say, but it's not fair that he has 10 and I only have four and what Zophar is wanting Job to recognize is, Job, you're getting what's fair. Job is saying what? It's not true. I'm not getting what's fair. 
So as we begin to close, let's notice two things that we could perhaps take away from this exchange between Zophar and Job. The first of which is God's justice is often perplexing. I hope getting a sense of that with Job. He recognizes that God is sovereign. He recognizes that God is just. He recognizes the counsel of his friends, but he recognizes that his experience of God's sovereign justice doesn't make sense of what they are telling him. Doesn't make sense even of his own experience. Because what's quite true in Zophar's eloquent and driving sermon about the day of God's wrath is all of that does eventually fall upon the wicked. Yet it's not true of Job's life. And so Job, as he expounds forth in verse 22, again of chapter 21, saying, will anyone teach God knowledge, seeing that he judges those who are on high? He recognizes that justice ultimately and sovereignly belongs to God, but it doesn't make sense what's happening. And maybe you've been in a place in your own life where you've wondered aloud. Is God actually just in his dealings? It might be in your own life, individually, in suffering and affliction that he has brought your way. It could be in a local church's life that has gone through an unusual season of calamity. It could be in another congregation's life across the ocean that are facing unusual persecution in spite of all of their faithfulness and obedience. And yet it seems as though the oppressors of the church are always rising in power. Where is God and his justice in such a situation? So his justice is often perplexing. But what we need to see is... Secondly, and perhaps it's the necessary place to land tonight, is that his timing is always perfect. Because Zophar is right in so many ways. His timing, however, couldn't be worse. Because what he's saying is, in this life, the wicked will always get God's wrath. And the reality of Scripture is, the wicked will always get God's wrath. But not necessarily in this life. And so often when you read through the minor prophets and God's people are oppressed and they're wanting justice to come and the prophet comes along and says, just wait. For the day of God's wrath, for the day of the Lord, that time at the end of all things when God is going to make things right and the wicked will finally and fully and eternally get what they deserve and those who love the Lord will finally, fully and eternally get what God rewards for those that belong to Jesus Christ. Because one of the great conundrums of Job's experience is he's trying to help his friends understand that sometimes bad things happen to good people. Not just that good things happen to bad people, but overarchingly, sometimes bad things happen to those who are good. And we know that it perfectly happened, didn't it, to the Lord Jesus Christ. That his justice maybe was perplexing to some But then in time, we see the fullness of time that God's Son came forth. And he took sin and its punishment that he didn't deserve. He took the day of God's wrath into his very heart. That even bad people might get good things. Sinners, by faith in Jesus Christ, might get salvation and forgiveness of sins. God's justice is often perplexing. And yet we rejoice and find comfort, don't we? In knowing that his timing and bringing about his sovereign purposes in Jesus Christ, well, that timing is always perfect. Let's pray together.
Oh, Father, we want to be people that know that you are sovereignly working all things for our good and according to your sovereign and eternal purpose and decree in our life. Help us, we pray, in the midst of whatever season you have us. Maybe it's a season of blessing. Maybe it's a season of loss. Maybe it's a season of waiting to be full of faith, to always be abounding in love and obedience, trusting that you are working all things together for our good, that your justice is indeed going to rule once and for all, and that your timing will always be perfect as you bring forth the fruits of your sovereign plan in our life. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.